Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today we'll begin the first part of a two-part series examining the organizers and writers behind the local Dogfish Reading Series, one of my favorite series in the city. Uh, Very happy to be talking with them. And we'll be starting out with poet and journalist Kate Root. Take a listen. Hey, Kate, how you doing? Hi. Good. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, to kind of start us off, uh, tell me a little bit how you got involved with Dogfish. So uh, Jessica and I met through a mutual friend, Jessica Kinnison, whose home is where we host Dogfish. Uh, She has a home in St. Rock. And when I met her, she actually didn't live there yet. She was still shopping for a house. And she really had it in her mind that she wanted to be able to host a reading series or special events in her house. She wasn't quite sure what the form of it was, but that was definitely something that she looked at in terms of layout. Um, she had gone to school at, she got her master's in chat at Chatham in Pittsburgh. And there's a famous reading series there that she was inspired by. So she really wanted to bring that energy. Um, so we were in a writing group for a couple of years and then she bought the house and she said, I'm going to have this reading series. (laughs) Uh, the first one is in February and this was 2015. Um, so by then I just, as her friend went, helped her like, set up food, not be too nervous, that kind of stuff. And it was so great. I've been to lots of reading series here. I've lived in New Orleans for 11 years, and I've uh, definitely spent time at the old 17 Poets or Blood Jet or Pass It On Team Snow events. It was so special to have it be in someone's house. So we really wanted to make it this special thing based so much on the environment that we were in. And It was especially perfect for me because I wanted some way to stay, to get more involved in the writer's community in New Orleans. I'd been working in journalism and gotten farther away from my literary aspirations. Mm -hmm. So getting back closer to them. I mean, I think that, in fact, I didn't read at the open mic for the first six months that we had the event. And then I did. And I was like, oh, God. It's like awaken something in me (laughs) or reawaken because I'd already spent so much time at these open mics and love them. So it's been just really special. We're going to be closing on three years now. And also then I get this beautiful opportunity to like ask either former professors of mine or classmates or just people I admire like, hi, I have this room in New Orleans. It's beautiful and people are really happy to be there and people usually make friends among the audience. It's one of like it being in a house also kind of breaks a little bit of that social awkwardness of being at a reading and get to just invite people. Hey, do you want to share your work in this beautiful space? I promise there'll be people there. Yeah, no, it facilitates that, which is but I, having gone to the reading series. That's one of the things that I love it, that that very intimate nature that's not intimidating at all, though, right. you know. And I mean, Jessica started, I mean, she usually is standing at the door greeting people as they come in. Hi, I'm Jessica. This is my house. Here's the bar and the back are snacks. Every month is its own kind of experiment just because no one's a return reader. Yeah, there's so many people here. I also feel like. Since I've lived in New Orleans, there's been a real, uh, frequently, less now, but a real segregation sometimes in uh, the literary scenes. Definitely there's a racial element, but also that thing in poetry, spoken word versus written, which again, I went and saw like Clint Smith at New Orleans Public Library. And I'm like, you guys want to talk about how spoken word isn't anything? Like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I think that sometimes it's like, are are you mad because... 
they're really moving people? Like, yeah. is that bothering you? Or the performative <laughs> aspect? Like, yeah, you know, like, like I don't know. Like, if they're touching people, what? What that's what you want, right? You yeah. want people to feel something. That's the most important thing. So that being said, just one of my goals and our group goals at Dogfish has been really to try to make it new faces, make it new voices. One of the things that really bothered me when I was a young poet going to these poetry readings would be sometimes I felt like I was just a witness to this like mutual admiration society where everyone gets introduced as this great, great genius who's yeah. underappreciated and... It doesn't seem like it's about the work at that level. The personalities kind it's, of going off of each other. Right. And I understand everyone should have friends. Oh, yeah. But that's one of the things that we've been really working at at Dogfish, and it's constantly evolving. And also the group aspect of that, I think, really helps. Yeah. You know, Jessica, Alex, Taylor Moreau is our other staff member. The four of us have really different tastes, people we know, things that we're into. So... You know, we can have a, a a poetry night that is more classical poetry that it, someone loves, and then yeah. we can have a spoken word night. We can have someone do sci-fi. We can have someone reading experimental feminist prose, which is kind of my thing. So. Yeah, no, I was about to ask you, what's kind of the aesthetic right there, your quarter of it? I mean, my personal reading right now, I'm going obsessed with uh, Maggie Nelson. Um, she just, I'm reading everything that she's written right now. The weird mishmash of mixed genre, constructing, deconstructing narrative, and using that particularly to um, lend credence to women's experiences and lived lives in a way that they can sometimes get shunted away. That's really my jam. All right, cool, <laughs> cool. Um, and tell me a little bit about some of your favorite experiences from like the past three years at Dogfish. And uh, are there any things that really stand out for you? I love our holiday party. Yeah. I love it so much. Um, we, I mean, we get dressed up. Usually, I mean, we always have snacks, but we try to go like heavier on the cheese and chocolate and <laughs> <laughs> holiday food. Um, we have music at least last year and the year before. We've had my friend, Mr. Universe, sing holiday covers Aww. at the holiday show. And so that's great because I get to see my friend perform. And also, I just like the way that he performs. He doesn't want to get introduced. He just wants to sit in the corner and start playing his guitar. And when he starts singing, eventually, once people pay attention, he can get pretty loud. You know, it's yeah, just yeah. like this. I like to watch how, again, how other people use this beautiful space. How do they want to bring whatever art that they're bringing in their heart to share it with these people? How are they going to try to connect with them? And to the thing is about it also being in this house, you feel almost like this person brought it for you. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things is when, even though you know that the art came from another person, it feels like they're just handing you a gift. And yeah. that's how I feel sometimes when I'm like, how did we put this all together? It's like, so that's my favorite thing is just seeing how other people transform that space. And then again, people that I care about tell me later, oh my gosh, that person was so good. I'm like, I'm so glad you came. Yeah, exactly. You experienced that. You got that. But yeah, also I'm a, I'm a, I'm not a diva, I would say, but like I like attention, so I like when I read. <laughs> I like it a lot. <laughs> I like it when I read and then people are like, oh my God, that was so good. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> Take it. And you also yeah. do some some cooking. I know that as well. I do that, yeah. And I haven't in forever because it's, um, I don't know, somehow the, they left the oven on in New Orleans and I'm not dealing with it right now. <laughs> Someone needs to go turn that off because it's, 
90 degrees in October right now. No, exactly. Um, well, tell me this. Uh, one question I'm looking forward to asking all of you is, uh, if you can invite one person to the reading series, living or dead, who would it be? Living or dead? I got to go with Dorothy Parker. Ooh, that would be a fun one. Yeah, she, I mean, I'm scared of her. Yeah, very much. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I can't think of anyone more apt to yeah. invite. All right, that's, that's my answer. solid answer. I like it. Um, well, tell me a little bit about. But then I would want Sam Cooke as the musical guest. Oh, that would be killer! <laughs> I forget you got to add the musical guest as well. Ooh, that would be a killer lineup right there. Yeah, I, I like it. Um, <laughs> tell me a little bit about your own writing. What What are you working on right now? Do you have anything like in particular? Any projects? Yeah. So actually, I just started. I think writing a book. I again in the vein of the things that I'm interested in. These form bending female writers. I'm working on a project that basically constructs a narrative through five chronological essays. So you get these essays that I've already written. Most of them are published. That is this kind of polished, consistent voice. Yeah. Kind of talking about this creeping problem of female desire and how it can be appropriate or inappropriate in relationships. And it ends with a piece that I published earlier this year that was on Catapult called Pals, the Married Man and Me. And I really worked my heart out on that essay. And when I was finished, needed a minute. And then simultaneously, that relationship imploded. So I spent some time not writing yeah and then I wrote a bunch of poems and letters to friends and all of these things so I'm kind of working on some a little bit of postmodern mashup of how to deal with that part right so right yeah. now like the narrative part ends with the end of pals and then the next section is after and immediately after it's like an undated g-chat conversation between me and a friend where she's kind of counseling me through how I should deal with this feeling of abandonment that I have. Yeah. And it's great because after this huge construction of voice, you get to see how I actually talk to my actual friends. Yeah. And in, in this kind of real time of Gchat too, where you see the line breaks and stuff. Um, it's interesting how you talk about that because like normally like with fiction or even with poetry, you kind of have a shield from the more personal nature of things. But mm -hmm. here you're putting this on this and you seem you're talking about it like it's an experiment, which is kind of fun. Um, yeah, I mean, I yeah. I think actually I'm just trying to write the book I tried to write yeah. 10 years ago and couldn't write. So basically, once it goes to after, I'm just going to explode all form. So then there's going to be a section of critical theory. That's about as far as I know right now, All but right. I'm super into it. No, no, that's cool. It's really exciting. Thank you. Yeah, well, I know you've brought a little bit of work here. I think some, some poetry. Yeah, uh, I have a few poems. Yeah, I'd love if you could share some, please. Okay. Um, so these are some poems that are part of that project, but they're from different spaces. Okay. Monday, 6 a.m. I stand between two gates, wait for the sound of his engine. I know the push and stop the, the second before he idles. I can pick out his sound from the ambient noise just like I can tell you to start running five minutes before the downpour. In the car, quiet, I smell his wintergreen gum, listen to his mouth move. We are halfway through this five-minute ride, dark blue world like the car is in a tunnel, but it's not. And he says, so I read your essay, his voice still light, almost a joke behind it. 
objectively speaking, it's very, very good. And you know, you can write whatever you want, but subjectively, I don't think you should have given it to me. And I don't think you should have given it to X. She's very, very upset. And I don't know if she's ever going to talk to you again. His mouth moves. And at the same time we move, we go from street to parking lot. We exit a car and walk into a building. We walk upstairs and then down them. We stop in the subterranean space. He smiles. I know this is a lot first thing in the morning, and this doesn't mean we aren't friends, and his mouth keeps moving, but this is the end. This one's called Nature's. Her cat was pathetic. Fluffy ragdoll actually reminded me of a stuffed tom from childhood. Mewled well cried, really, all the time. So neglected, I'd coo, scratching his chin while he clutched to her. Really, fur around her neck, all soft, all the sharp things taken away. His cat was still a cat, and by that I mean mean, so I favored him, obviously, my workshop nickname Kate with Claws. I like a cat who growls when they're over you, then swats, nips. I mean, with my own cat, I let her sink her teeth in. I tell myself I'm not trying to piss them off, just, you know, let out the necessary aggression. I never tried to pick him up, I'm no fool. Funny now, I can't remember whether they'd clawed him, too. As for my cat, I could go on all day, so I'll just tell you this. Yes, she still has her claws, and she has a lot of nicknames, but the two I use most often are Monster and Pretty Girl. And this last one is called The Story After the Story Behind My Tattoo. This is a metaphor, I protest, posting a photo of two oyster shells, empty as the word shell implies, facing off on this big tray of tiny ice. They're the only two still belly up, all the rest defeated, prone, not just slurped to oblivion as these two have been, but overturned, discarded, because even their shell is no longer a home. There will never be another oyster alive in there. These two are facing their emptiness. They have yet to be refuse, tossed into wetlands to try to make up for what we've lost. If we're lucky, feed a future. Their little black dots, like eyes, could be looking at each other. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we're short on time, but I do want to ask you one more thing. Sure. Um, what are you reading right now? And, you know, this interview will air in December. So what are you looking forward to in 2018? So what am I reading right now? Um, so many things. I have a book called Radical Hope, which is letters about um, art and keeping faith in resistance. I'm still reading Marge Piercy's um, the Moon is Always Female, which is a collection of poems from 1980, which is a real barn burner. I my, picked it up from the back of my friend's car and had to buy my own copy. And I th think that's it. I'm trying to—I read four books last week, so— <laughs> All right, just toning it down a little bit. A, a little yeah. bit. 2018. Uh, <laughs> you know what? I'm taking it all day by day right now. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good enough answer. I'll take it. I'm— I'm looking forward to the beer on the walk home right now, and yeah. we'll keep on going after that. <laughs> <laughs> Appropriate. Well, okay, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I was so happy. Appreciate it. That was poet and writer Kate Root, a founding organizer of the Dogfish Reading Series. Up next is fiction writer Alex Jennings. Today I'm speaking with Alex Jennings. Uh, how are you doing today, Alex? I'm doing great. Well, to kind of start us off, I was wondering, how did you get involved with Dogfish? Okay, well, we originally were a writing group more than anything else. We were a writing workshop that got together and exchanged work with each other and gave each other feedback on projects we were working on. And then uh, Jessica told us that the 
Loyola Writing Institute was looking to begin a reading series and that she was going to host it at her house. And uh, she asked for our help on that. And uh, so we pulled together and we did one and it was great fun. And so we decided to keep going with it. Well, that's cool. And you kind of serve as the MC for the evenings most of the times, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, what's that job like? How do you kind of, you know, pull things together? Well, I have a background in comedy and I've been doing so much with writing lately that I haven't had as much time to do stand up. Yeah. So it's like my main performance outlet at this point. But the standards for humor aren't as high. So my jokes can be a little bit more corny for the for the literary crowd, and uh, that takes some of the pressure off. In all honesty, it is a very spiritual, spiritually fulfilling um, process every month. I uh, I sometimes tell the crowd that a dogfish fulfills the place that church used to fulfill in my life especially when we were living overseas and we couldn't get to church services all the time and yeah. they would take place on a monthly basis. And that's that's kind of how Dogfish feels to me. I feel that. Uh, what was your background in comedy? How did you get into that? <sighs> how did I get into that? I guess, well, I'd always been kind of a comedy nerd following comedians that I liked and like watching um, routines and specials really closely. And then I did an open mic at the new movement once and I just I, I loved it so much like I did like two and a half jokes and actually wound up getting some laughs and so I just kept going for a while I don't do it as much as I, I'd like to now but I, I do have a love affair with it oh, I get that that's really interesting um you had mentioned uh, being overseas a bit uh, military family no state department really oh wow yeah my father was a diplomat after Many of the African countries gained their independence in the 60s. The State Department instituted a major push to bring in black foreign service agents to open diplomatic relations with those countries. And uh, my father and my mother were part of that program. Wow. And uh, so my father spent a lot of time posted in Africa. You know, I would have been born in South Africa, but my mother decided she didn't want me born under apartheid. Yeah. And so I was born in uh, Wiesbaden, Germany instead. So we, we traveled around an awful lot. I could see that. How, um, kind of to, to bring us into the writing component of this, mm -hmm. how has that kind of influenced your writing, having grown up in these different places and seen all these different things? Uh, it's influenced my writing a great deal. Sometimes it's difficult to discern exactly how because I don't know what it's like not to have those experiences. Yeah. Um, but I do think that it's one of the reasons why I became so enamored of speculative fiction. When we were living in Suriname, the uh, the official language is Dutch. Mm -hmm. And so most of the bookstores only had Dutch books and things like that. And um, the community liaison office at the embassy had a library where people would just turn in their old books once they were done with them. And uh, that was where I got into issues of Asimov's science fiction magazine. That's where I encountered for the first time the work of Octavia Butler, um, especially the Xenogenesis trilogy. And um, it just really took hold of me. And um, by the time I actually met Octavia Butler and 
experienced the understanding that one of my major heroes was also a living, breathing person that I could interact with. Like I knew that I wanted to write for the rest of my life for sure. Well, what was that? Where did you meet her? I met her when I was going to the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. She came to speak to one of our writing classes. And then I guess her ride home was late by about two hours. So she just came to the writing center and sat at a table with about five of us and just talked to us for hours. And uh, I remember in conversation, she asked me if I wrote every day and I said yes. And uh, she told me, well, if you apply to the Clarion West Writers Workshop, you will get in. And I was like, I, uh, but that doesn't make any sense that you would say a thing like that because, like, you haven't read my work. I mean, I'm, I'm awful. <laughs> so, so why would you, why would you tell me I could get into that? But, you know, on the off chance that she was right, I applied and I did get in. And that was also a major change. That was the next step in actually spending time with working writers. And um, they say about Clarion West that you get two years of your writing career in six weeks. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I would say that's definitely true. Interesting. Where is uh, Clarion West located? Clarion West is still in Seattle. Okay, interesting. Tell me a little bit about your, your writing itself. How would you describe it? All right. How would I describe my writing? Well, I think it's influenced by my being born around the same time as hip hop. Yeah. So I have a, what I consider to be a pretty unique approach to pastiche and synthesis of popular culture, idioms and tropes and images. So... What I usually do is I take an image that has repeated for me in popular culture that I've taken in, or, you know, it, it doesn't have to just be an image. It could be an idea, a thought process, uh, um, a story beat, and then I, uh, I recontextualize it for my own fiction, sort of like sort of like the way jazz musicians will signify back and forth, mm -hmm. and... I'd say the best example of that is uh, the novel that I'm just now finishing up. Its current working title is Peaches, a Jazz Fantasy, um, but it's basically a black exploitation Pippi Longstocking story set in a version of New Orleans where music and magic are the same thing. And so my Pippi Longstocking character is named Peaches Lavelle, and uh, she and her friends have to capture nine songs that have escaped from Professor Longhair's piano. <laughs> Um, and return them before the city ceases to exist. So what I started with for that was I was reading articles about kids who returned to the city after Hurricane Katrina and had to live without their parents while their parents looked for a way to return as well. Yeah. And so I immediately started thinking like, okay, well, what do I know in popular culture about a kid who... Uh, lives on her own, um, even though she's too young for that. And Pippi Longstocking immediately came to mind. And then the next step was thinking, well, okay, well, what if P what if Pippi Longstocking was from New Orleans? And uh, so that's how I came up with the whole Peaches Lavelle thing and everything else about the rest of her world. And I just went from there. That sounds like a uh, a hoot and a half to take an idiomatic expression. That sounds fantastic. 
Yeah. Well, good. I'm I'm looking for representation <laughs> for it now. <laughs> I understand. No, no, no stealing. Oh man, that, that that I I'm excited to read that. Do you have any um sections you could read for us today? You know, I might. Yeah. I might. I was going to read from the short story collection that's already out. Um, but I think I do have some peaches here. All right. All right. Let's go ahead whenever you're ready. Some nights when he couldn't sleep, instead of reading comics or Billy Seven Adventures, Perry Graves would get out of his would get out his flashlight in his trusty phantom toll booth and read under the covers in a fort made of pillows and blankets. Well, what he did couldn't quite be called reading. He would hold his flashlight like a telephone receiver between his chin and shoulder and thumb through the pages, running his fingers over the letters without sounding the words inside his head. He didn't need to. He knew them all better than, he'd, than if he'd written the book himself. Without realizing it, he'd mouth a word or sentence, dodecahedron, doldrums, killing time, and he realized dimly that he didn't actually need the flashlight to enact this right. The words flowed into him through his fingertips, or no, they didn't, because they already lived deep inside him, inhabiting his core. Perry needed only to touch the print in order to create a sympathetic vibration in his chest, and the story would tell itself to him, and every last word was magic every single time. Perry liked the movie version of The Phantom Tollbooth, liked it a lot. Most everything was more or less the way he imagined it when he first read the book. Well, mostly less, but he didn't care to sit through it today. He wanted to jump from his seat on the floor by the column and disappear behind it, then, on tiptoes, skulk right out of Jelly Roll Morton Academy to freedom in the boiling Nola summer. Instead, Perry pulled his right leg up so he could rest his elbow on his knee as he stared at the screen without seeing. Milo had just discovered the giant red and white striped pack package in the foyer of his row house. Hey! Perry. Perry frowned. Milo had found the card whose envelope read, for Milo, who has plenty of time, Perilous Antoine Graves. Distracted from his sort of watching, Perry looked around. For a moment, he thought he'd heard Peaches trying to get his attention, but anyone who knew her knew that Peaches would never set foot inside a school. He couldn't find the source of the whispering anyway. Don't look round, boy. Act like you ain't heard me. Perry's heart lurched in his chest. It was Peaches. She must have broken her cardinal rule to sneak into Morton Academy and sit at Perry's side unnoticed by the teachers or the students. Teacher ain't looking. Get up and head straight outside. Now! Now! Perry wavered for a moment, then slowly folded himself into a crouch. Creeping slowly, he edged around the column to keep it between him and everyone else. Then, carefully, soundlessly, holding his breath even, he crept out into the hallway. Thanks so much for sharing that. Sure thing. Uh, to kind of get this back to, to Dogfish, uh, what are some special moments that you've had during the, the series' history so far? There have been so many. Hosting Tank Ball of Tank and the Bangers was, was a major moment for us, I think. I think it was our, our best attended show. And uh, it represent, it represented an effort that we've been making to diversify our audience and make sure that it's more representative of the demographics of New Orleans itself. I was just I was just over the moon happy about it. Also, um a recent reading featuring Nisi Shaw and Shayna Monet. That was a huge deal for me. After Octavia Butler died, 
Nisi's friendship has been one that has sustained me through my career and has helped me keep my perspective on what I'm trying to do with my own writing. And bringing her down and having her on the show was just, it, it was extremely important to me. And I think it went, uh, it went very well. It was well attended. And the crowd uh, responded beautifully. Nisi also wrote the introduction for my short story collection as a favor, and I'll, I'll never forget it. She's, a, she's just wonderful. What's the, uh, what's the name of your short story collection? It's called Here I Come and Other Stories. It's available on Smashwords and on Amazon. All right, cool, cool. Good to know. Um, if there, if you had the ability to bring any person, living or dead, to Dogfish to read, who would you choose? Hands down, Octavia Butler. Yeah, I thought that might be your answer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, cool. Um, well, Alex, our our interviews kind of come into a close, but um, I'd love to hear uh, what you're reading right now and and what you got coming up in the new year. Um, right now I'm working on another one of those hip hop pastiche pieces. Yeah. It's about, uh, kind of over the hill, down on his luck, Encyclopedia Brown, encountering Blackula in post-Katrina New Orleans. And, uh, so I've been reading from that. I'm polishing it. It's a, it's a novella and I don't know. It seems like a lot of fun. Yeah. My older sister's also in it. Okay, that, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Well, fantastic. Uh, oh, before we do go, uh, uh, outside of Dogfish, you're, you're a teacher? Uh, yeah, I, I, I mostly substitute teach, and I'm in grad school right now for fiction. Oh, wow. What, what program? Uh, Western State Colorado University. Okay, cool. Well, Alex, this has been a pleasure talking with you. Absolutely. Pleasure talking with you, too. That was author Alex Jennings, and before that, we had poet Kate Root, both founding organizers and members of the Dogfish Reading Series. And this is part one of two on the series itself. Next week, we'll focus in on Jessica Kennison and Taylor Murrow. And that's our show. You've been listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch us every Thursday at 3 p.m. as well as on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. All of our interview shows from WRBH can be found on our SoundCloud page, www.soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio, as well as on iTunes and Google Play. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.